We are looking at Revelation 21 and 22, and today we finally cross the line into chapter 22. So we're about to look at the very, very, very last chapter of the Bible, because I really think it's valuable and helpful and hopeful for, for you to have a clear and a compelling image of what awaits you. This isn't some weird theory. It's not some religious thing. This is, this is like, this will become human history. This is where the world is is heading. This is what's going to happen. And we need to know it because sometimes things are yucky. Things are just crummy and it's not super great. Um, and we need to anchor our lives to a future hope. And what we've been seeing, if you haven't been here, is that as John reveals, so revelation, the word revelation um, means kind of what it says. It's, it's, it's a revealing of, an uncovering of, a disclosing of. Um, that's what the word apocalypse means, to uncover what lies ahead. And as he is revealing and showing things, he's doing so almost exclusively through Old Testament imagery. He's picking passages from the Old Testament, promises that God made to Israel about a restoration they would get, and he's taking them all up and he's kind of packaging them and putting them together. The trick for us, though, as we read Revelation 22 is very often we, we try to take Revelation 22 and we pattern match it to, like, the newspaper, you know, like, this is Saddam Hussein, right? Do you remember when Saddam Hussein was like all, like, with all these different things? And really what we should do is we take Revelation and not pattern match it to, like, the New York Times, but pattern match it to the Old Testament. Like, where does it line up? Oh, this is what it was talking about. This is what it is. And so we're just trying to, like, stretch our vocabulary, be more familiar with the texts that John is drawing from so we can know, because if, if we know what it meant here, then that gives us a lot of insight to know what it means, means there. And as we jump into Revelation 22, especially these first, I don't know, five or six verses, there's so much here. There's just, he'll, with great economy of words, he'll just use a phrase or say something that if you double click on it, it's like all of this just giant piles of stuff, really big and important ideas unpack. And, but you could read through it and, never, and not know it or not slow down and see it enough. So we really want to go back and be like, what are the things that he's drawing from? And so this little section here, Maybe we'll go, how far do I want to go? Maybe just the first five verses of chapter 22. I don't know if we'll, we, we might get through. We actually got a late start, so we'll see what happens. But we're going to try it. We're, we're going to see if we can't get a sense of what John is referring to, because it is just so much. Okay, so ready? Revelation 22, we're going to start verse 1. He says, Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, as clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God, and of the Lamb down the middle of the great street of the city. On each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing twelve crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. That's the second time he's used that phrase. You might recall we, we've hit that, heard that recently. Verse 4, they will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads. There will be no more night they will not need the light of the lamp or the, or the light of the sun, for the Lord God will give them light, and they will reign forever and ever. Okay, that's our passage. So much stuff is jammed into here that it might not be obvious, okay? So let's do the river first. And I don't even know if we'll get past the river, but what is the river? When he says he looks and he sees, how does it go? Show me the river of the water of life as clear as crystal flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb down the middle of the great street of the city. What is it? Holy Spirit. Okay, Holy Spirit is an excellent answer. This is good. Let's get a couple things and we'll, we'll unpack that. Holy Spirit, what is it? What images are being drawn from? Sustenance. 
Okay, sustenance, the sense of God's provision, his, deliver, his deliverance of goodness to us. Very good. What else? What other great river might he be referencing or Old Testament passages are we, are we getting after? Okay, good. And, and Garden of Eden might not be obvious, but, what, but there's, a, there's kind of a second clue that accompanies the river that makes it feel more Edenic. What's that? Tree of, tree of life. Okay, so the tree of life. That if I said, "What's the tree of life?" That's going to bring your minds back here. So let's. So so in this in the in the in the Eden, there is this river, and it is. He's absolutely pointing back to these things, right? All, everything you said is is true. We'll, we'll kind of hit them all, kind of one at a time, and maybe a couple other things besides. So the Garden of Eden, this thing that land before the world was spoiled, it's not the case. This is this is a little complicated, right? We, we've hit this before. The the promise of heaven is not that we're going back to Eden. Okay, and why is it not that we're going back to Eden? What is what won't be true of the future world that was true of Eden? Uh, yeah, who say that again? There was no city, right? So the garden was great; it was fantastic. But remember this: it wasn't perfect. It was good. It was unspoiled, but it was immature. We're supposed to go build stuff, right? If you if you got dropped into the Garden of Eden, you'd kind of miss your hot running water right? There's no stuff. It's just, you're in the woods. It's a camping trip, but it's a really, it's a national park, which is amazing, but there's no buildings. There's no infrastructure. There's no metallurgy. There's no any of those things, right? So we're not merely going back. We're not going to be living like, you know, just in the woods, you know, digging up roots with a stick, right? But we are being returned to this Edenic perfection. So when, when you see this, this, this river and the tree of life, we're thinking about Eden. So that's one. We'll get more to the tree in a minute. Uh, what else did you guys say? What else is the river? Holy Spirit. Okay, it's the Holy Spirit. Why do you, why do you make that claim? That's a, I think it's true, but can you prove it to a skeptic? Why is this river the Holy Spirit? It's living water. Okay. Expand. Um, so it's the, the source of the tree of life is, is being nourished by and fed by this living water that is Okay, so can you think of any passages where living water is equated with the Holy Spirit? Baptism. Okay, so in, so in baptism, although we're not really being baptized into the Spirit per se, it's really we're being baptized into Christ. And the second person of the Trinity is real. Although we baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, but there's something else there. there are, but, there, but they exist, Christine. There's other passages that say that where Jesus and, oh, I don't know, say John makes explicit that this, this water is the Spirit. Can you, can you think of them? Well, out of Samaria. Okay, so John 4 is interesting. So in John 4, he promises this woman, right? You guys know, we said that the Samaritan woman, the woman at the well, you might call her. It's in John chapter 4. And Jesus says, you know what, if any, that you should come to me and I'll, we'll provide for you this living water. You'll, you'll never be thirsty again. Um, and that's part of the image. That's what's kind of one bead on the jewel, on, on one bead on the, I don't know, the string of jewels. But he doesn't explicitly connect that with the Spirit of God. Yeah, do you have a sense? Yeah, this is um, John uh, 7. John 7. Go there, you guys. Very explicit. Now, on the last day, the great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out, saying, If any man is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture said, from his innermost being shall flow rivers of living water. But this he spoke of the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive, 
For the Spirit was not yet given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. That's exactly right, you guys. That's John 7, 38 and 39. Whoever believes, Jesus is Jesus speaking, whoever believes in me, as the scriptures have said, streams of living water will flow from him. By this he meant the Spirit, whom those who later believed were to believe. Okay, so anytime you see a river in the scriptures, you should, it's, not it's not a 100% lockdown case, this is the Spirit of God, but there's a pretty good shot. That that's, what it, that's what it is. And I do believe that what you see, and I'll show you this in a second too when we come back to 22, Revelation 22, that this river that is flowing, and in particular this river that is flowing from the Father and the Son, it is the Spirit. We don't have a binity. We don't just have a Father and a Son. We have a trinity, a Father, Son, and Spirit. And very often in the Scriptures you'll see the Father and the Son explicitly present, and you're like, well, where's the Spirit? And it's almost always the case that in fact He is present. Um, in a way that might shock and surprise you unless you've ever heard us, unless we've ever talked about this or you happen to like to read Jonathan Edwards. Um, there's, a, there's a strange thing going on here that I'll, I'll give you, a, I'll just give you a quick taste of it and then we can unpack it at another time if you want to. Um, but there is a, a very strong argument to be made that the Holy Spirit is in fact the love of God that the Father has for the Son and that the Son has for the Spirit. And that from all eternity, the relationship, the love, the joy, the delight that exists between the Father and the Son is so rich, so real, that it is a he. That it is a living person. And that the Spirit of God is the love of God that exists between Father and Son. Okay? And I know that's a weird thing to kind of just drop out there. But we could, if we had more time, we could, we could really unpack this. And I could show you that Augustine taught this, that Lewis taught this, that Edwards taught this and that the scriptures support it. You don't have to believe me, and that's perfectly fine, okay? This is not like required orthodoxy. But uh, the idea that the Spirit of God is in fact the love of God explains so very, very many things. Why, in fact, in every letter does Paul begin, grace and peace to you from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. But he never mentions the Spirit. Why is that? Well, one explanation could be that it's because he did mention the Spirit, because the Spirit is the grace. The Spirit is the peace. The Spirit is the love and the delight and the joy that exists between the Father and the Son and which he shares with us. But when it says that God is love, that quite literally, quite specifically, this is what it means. When the Bible says, alternately, that God has placed his love in our hearts and that God has placed his Spirit in our hearts, that it's really saying the same thing. That if you go back to this, this, is, this might be one little place. Go to Psalm 36. Psalm 36, verse 7, is another one of these places where we kind of can get this sense of this kind of substitutionary nature of the way these terms are used. If you start in verse 7, it says, How priceless is your unfailing love, both high and low among men. Find refuge in the shadow of your wings. They feast on the abundance of your house, and you give them drink from the river of your delight. For with you is the fountain of life, and in your light we see the light. Continue your love to those who know you, your righteousness to the upright in heart. And in there he's creating this clear equivalence between the fountain of his love, the river of God's delight, and the love of God. And if this river of God's delight is the river of Revelation 22 is in fact the John 4 water, is in fact the John 7 water, and it is 
In fact, the Spirit of God and all these things are the same. That the love of God and the Spirit of God and this river, they're all used throughout Scripture in, in an interchangeable way. Which is why when you come back to Revelation 22 and you see this final image of the Father and the Son and the river, you really are seeing a Trinitarian vision, not just the two. But it's, it's, it, it's presented in a way that might not be super obvious. Okay, So far so good on the complete craziness of that? There's more to that argument, but it's even stranger than that. So we'll leave it, leave it there for the moment. Let me, let me read you one quick, just very, very short proof text, because you might trust this a little more than you trust me. Um, uh, let's see. Where is this? Okay. This is mere Christianity. This is Lewis explaining this exact thing. Um, that, by the way, is perhaps the most important difference between Christianity and all other religions. That in Christianity, God is not a static thing, not even a person, but a dynamic, pulsating activity. A life, almost a kind of a drama. Almost, if you will not think me irreverent, a kind of dance. And then hear this. The union between the Father and the Son is such a live, concrete thing that this union itself is also a person. I know this is almost inconceivable, but look at it thus. You know that among human beings, when they get together in a family or a club or a trade union, people talk about the spirit of that family or the club or the trade union. They talk about its spirit because the individual members, when they are together, do really develop a particular way of talking and behaving which they would not have if they were apart. It is as if a sort of communal personality came into existence. Of course, it is not a real person. It's only rather like a person. But that is just one of the differences between God and us. Here's the punchline. What grows out of the joint life of the Father and the Son is a real person. Is in fact the third of the three persons who are God. Make sense? I mean, I mean it doesn't make sense. But <laughs> do you understand the claim? Right? I mean, it's just totally, totally nutso. But I think when we see this river, what he's showing us is that. He's showing us the river of God's delight of Psalm 36. He's showing us the river, the fountain that, 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 that bubbles up in John 4. He's showing the satisfaction. If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink, and out of him will flow springs of living water. It is, it, Christina's right, it is the Spirit of God. He's present here in this river. He, it is who is the Father, the Son, Holy Spirit together are, are here. And what, he, what John is inviting us to look to see is an exceptional image of a river, water of life, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb. Okay, is that enough for one day? Okay, then let's lock that down. Let's keep going. Uh, what else do you want to talk about? Why is um, the tree? What does it mean that we can we, that there's a tree of life? What do you rem- is there anything you remember about the tree of life uh, in the Garden of Eden? What are the what are the kind of what's important about it? You could okay. And what happens if you do? And for how long? Forever and ever. Okay. So the tree of life. The essence of this image is that you get to live forever. And this, you guys, you, can't, you cannot overestimate the importance of this in the gospel promises. You get to live forever. 
This is a long, 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 long time. In a billion years, in a trillion years, in a quadrillion years, whatever this, this imagine, imagine a dot and imagine a line that just keeps going and going and going and going and going and it never ever stops. It just runs around and it runs around. Okay, you're 70 or 80 or 90 or whatever you get, 50, 20, 30 years are a dot. And what we're offered in Christ is the ability to live forever and ever. And when John sees the tree of life, what we should say, what that it brings to us is that I will never die again. You're going to die once. There's a, how does this go? This thing, like, if you, uh, uh, forget, I won't, I won't do that because I'll mangle it. But you're going to die once, but in him, then you will never die again. It's amazing. And we kind of like, yeah, I've heard that all my life. Yeah, but slow it down. Think about it. What he's offering us is, number one, we get to live forever and ever and ever. Jennifer? I just had the thought, do you eat from the tree of life Great question. Okay, great. This is a great question. Um, and while you guys want to guess or you want to vote, like who thinks you get you eat one apple and you're golden forever, versus you just kind of get like apples on the reg, like forever and ever and ever. Who likes who likes option A, one apple? Option B is like continual eating. Okay, the majority says continual eating. I suspect it's continual eating, right? Not that there's any risk of it being otherwise. You would want to, though. Right. Well, and because what he says is, uh, da, da, da. on each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing 12 crops of fruit, e- yielding its fruit every month. And there's a sense of perpetuity to that. It's not a lockdown case, but it's probably also not actually a literal thing, right, in, in any case. But what he's, although maybe, who knows, he's welcome to have a tree if he wants to have a tree. But we, he's, in, at no point has he ever communicated to us uh, sustainability, right? Like we've talked about this before. Doug was made for unimaginable glory if and only if he remains plugged in. Doug doesn't have a battery, right? This is very John 15. Remain in me. Abide in me. So it seems like his general pattern is not to say, hey, here's everything you need. Get out. <laughs> right? Which would kind of be like, I eat the tree and now I live forever. But rather like, hey, all day, every day, any day, forever and ever and ever, I will always give you everything you need. It will never stop. There'll be this endless support, this endless flow. And so it seems to me to make more sense that the way that we always experience food is that there's never been a meal. I don't care how glorious your meal is. Like every meal you have, is, you could be stuffed to the gills, and then tomorrow you're like, man, I'm hungry, right? That's just the way that we're, we're will. And so when he uses food as an image, the idea is, is not that we eat one meal that we never eat again, but just that there's always going to be plenty. There will always be an abundance, and he will always be renewing and sustaining and continuing us, and it will never, ever stop. I think is the way that we should probably understand that. Dan? Well, I think it's also safe to assume that Adam and Eve ate from the tree of life during their early time in the garden, and they died. Uh, uh, it, it would be an assumption. It's, we have really little bit of information about that. It might, that might be true. And we, the timeline of you know, creation to fall and all this stuff, is hard, it's hard to unpack. It's, so it is possible, and that would support what I'm saying, but it's also possible they never got there. I just don't know. What's the first thing you would do if you heard there was a tree of life that you could eat from that would give you eternal life? First thing you would do. You'd go to the tree. That sounds a good thing. Well, I don't know. Am I standing next to a naked woman? Because <laughs> I could be like, I don't know. So you don't know. You don't know. There's plenty of time for all manner of good things, you know. So, okay. 
So let's keep going. So we're to treat. Oh, yeah, Suzanne? Uh, to speak to what Dan said, they're offered the tree of life, but they have no concept of death. So it's just another tree in the garden at that point. Um, well, except that, but they do, they probably do have the sense of this is something, there's something good about this, you know, that there's something desirable and delightful. Although they also saw there was something desirable and delightful about the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. That's true. Yeah, bro. Um. Genesis uh, 3, um, uh, 22 to 24. Then the Lord God said, Behold, man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. Now, lest he stretch out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out from the Garden of Eden to cultivate the ground from which he was taken. So he drove the man out, and at the east of the Garden of Eden, he stationed the carabine and the flaming sword, which turned every direction to guard the way to the tree of life. This implies that they hadn't eaten. It, 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 it does seem, it certainly suggests that he wants to prevent it from happening. And, and I think it's, it, would be, it would be an assumption either way, but I think there's a reasonable assumption to say, well, that he hadn't eaten from it yet. That could be. I just don't, I think it's, I think there's some ambiguity. Now uh, God doesn't want him to eat from it because he's, become, he's been corrupted. That's right. It, and he'll exist then in that corrupted state forever. That, that's right. It could be that he is blocking him from this um, as a new experience or as a continued experience. And it's just hard no, to say. There would then be no hope for him. That's right. And it's, it's really crucial that there be, if he had done that, he'd be, he'd be perpetually locked in to this state of corruption, which would be no gift at all. Right? Okay, so let's keep going. So what else do we see here? So in Revelation 22, we got this river, which represents the Spirit of God, and he's the source of all this goodness. Oh, and by the way, it's also, we, we hit it a couple weeks ago, it's the, it's the river of Ezekiel 47. You remember this? That in Ezekiel 47... Did, I, did we list this? Did we, I think we almost paused it. We talked about this, that, that this river comes out from the temple and it gets deeper and deeper and wider and wider. And wherever it goes, everything comes to life and the fish are swimming there and the salt water turns fresh and everything gets better. All of that. So it's, the, it's Eden. It's the Spirit of God. It is, the, it is this river, which also in Ezekiel 47 is the Spirit of God, but it brings restoration and life. It's all manner of good stuff, very economically packed into this little short phrase right how about this this might may or may not be obvious to you why does it say um where, where does it say blah 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 oh yeah verse four they will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads what does that mean they'll see his face and his name will be on their foreheads What's going on with that? It's not random. Can you think of an Old Testament antecedent to that, Jennifer? Well, supposedly, if we see his face, he would die. So now we're getting to see his face. Like Moses, you know, I remember Moses couldn't. Yes, yes, very good. So what once was certain to bring death, well, now that we are partakers of this tree of life, now that we're restored, now that everything is changing, that thing which we were, we were barred from the tree of Eden, I mean the tree of life. In Eden, in Eden you're never going to get to the tree. It's, it's no good. Uh, in, the, in this pre-existing circumstance, if you look at God's face, you're going to die. And now we have access to the tree and we have access to him. He's no longer fatal to us because something has changed within us. So that's huge. Yes? Because 
Adam and Eve, I always thought, were face to face with God, and then they hid from Him. So obviously, they. That's right. So it's sort of like I think you said last week. We go back. That's right. To what we had in Eden. So there's a reversal of everything bad that happens in Eden is, is going to be unmade. We were barred from the tree. Now we get the tree. We are barred from his presence. Now we get to be with him. And oh, even this, and even he's even very explicit. He says, I mean, right, quite plainly in verse 3, no longer will there be any curse. That's Genesis. That's Genesis 3. That's the curse. He's saying it's, it's all undone. You get the tree. You get him. The curse is over. We live forever. Like all of the badness is all done away with, and we, and we finally get to be with him. Okay, so yes, there's more too about seeing his face, more too about having his name on our foreheads. What, what do these things, can you think of an Old Testament thread you can pull about those things? Why is his name on our foreheads? Let's do that. Jason, you want to do that one or the other? Where they talk about in the Old Testament about how you write them on the doorpost, you write them on your forehead. Yeah. Yes, it's exactly right. It's Deuteronomy 6, right? If you guys know Deuteronomy 6, it's the, the Shema is what we call this. It says, Here, this is Deuteronomy 6, 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Did I not put this in here? No, I did. Yeah, here it is. It's, it's in here. Um, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. These commandments that I give you today are to be upon your hearts and press them upon your children. Talk about them when you sit at home, when you walk along the road, when you lie down, when you get up. Tie them as symbols on your hands. Bind them on your foreheads. Write them on the door frames of your houses and on your gates. I think we mentioned a little while ago that that's why you see the number of the beasts is on the, on the hands and heads. It's, it's a counterfeit of Deuteronomy 6, right? The what, but what, was, what, what God gives us in Deuteronomy 6, that Satan counterfeits, we get it back. That we will, our name, his name will be on our heads, which I don't think literally you're going to have Sharpie on your forehead. Although that would be fine, you know, that's cool. We tattoo our bodies, but I don't think that's what he means. It just simply means that our mind is his, our heart is his. We are his. We see his face and we are his entirely. He is my, I, it's kind of like Song of Solomon. My, I am my beloved, so my beloved is mine. Speaking of which, beloved? That's where I was going. And not just, also in Song of Solomon, I am my beloved. His banner everyone is love. And that banner is, a, is an ownership, a king's ownership over the people he's conquered. Yes. Banner over me as his person, as his beloved, as his bride, is love, and it's his ownership, and his kingship, and lordship over me. Yes. Amen. Yes. Yeah, it's really cool that he has our name on his palms. So it's not just that we bear his name on our heads, he bears our name on us. Yes. Oh, that's a great point. So, in case you don't know what Kelly's talking about, this is Isaiah, oh, shoot, Kelly, 55? Is that Isaiah? Um, it's definitely Isaiah, it's in the 50s. I think it's 55. Check this out. This is. This is a great observation. It's not 55. Um, it's not 53. Maybe 50. You guys have it? Uh, where is this? Um, engraved palms. Let's see. It's, just, it's a race. Can anybody get there? It's going to be in the 50s of Isaiah. Um, 49. So Isaiah 49, verse, uh, say, 14. Israel's all grumpy and sad and feels lonely and abandoned. It says, Zion says, the Lord has forsaken me. The Lord has forgotten me. And the response comes, can a mother forget the baby at her breast and have no compassion on the child she has born? 
though she may forget, I will not forget you. See, I have engraved you on the palms of my hands. Your walls are ever before me. That is, it's, just, it's like this strange image like of a, of a grade school child who like writes the name of the boy that she loves on her hand, you know? And that God is saying, You're, I have written you on my hand. He writes, our name is written, his name is written on us and our name is written on him. There's this reciprocal love and mutual self-giving adoration. Yeah. I've, I've got a note next to that verse and you may have been the one that said it, but it's engraved on the palm of my hand with a spike. That's right, yeah. That is a hint here that, like of the, of the crucifixion. Like if you looked at Jesus' hands to see your name, what you're also gonna see is a, like a, a nail hole for it is the, on his very palms as he loved us, that he loved us with a Roman spike. Yeah, there's a lot that's being woven there. Okay, I appreciate you kind of invoking that. Okay, uh, one other thing about seeing his face is, is at least one other Old Testament thing. If you think of like, do you guys know like the classic blessing, the classic Jewish blessing? Numbers. And what it is, numbers, very good. 24, 25, It's, it's gonna show up a handful of times uh, throughout numbers. Uh, here, I'll give it to you in number six, but it's, it's all over the place. It's going to be probably the same thing. Number six says, the Lord said to Moses, tell Aaron and his sons, this is how you are to bless the Israelites. Say to them, the Lord, you guys know it? The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord turn his face towards you and give you peace. Have you heard this? Was this part of a liturgy you learned growing up? So in that, the Lord make his face shine upon you. And the Lord turn his face towards you and give you peace. And that's what he's saying here, right? That God's, God, they will see his face. His name will be on their foreheads. Hang on. There'll be no more night. They will not need the light of the lamp or the light of the sun. For the Lord God will give them light and they will reign forever and ever, right? He is the one who is going to be... Um, their light, his face will shine upon them. And when I say them, I mean you on us. This is all, this is not about somebody else. This is for you. If you are in him, these are all for you. Okay, a couple more, then, we're, then we gotta run. Night and sun, we kind of covered that. I'm not gonna spend too much time on that, right? So Isaiah 60, um, all this thing about the sun is gone and all this kind of stuff, we, we talked about that. There's one more thing though that I wanna hit in our last few minutes. What does this line mean? When he says the very end in Revelation 22, verse 6, or verse 5, um, no more night. They won't need the light of the lamp or the light of the sun, for the Lord God will give them light. And here it is. And they will reign forever and ever. What does that mean, you guys? The spirit and the river and see his face and written here and all these things. And they will reign forever and ever. What does that mean? You are they. What is the Old Testament basis that Suzanne Dalton will reign forever and ever? Suzanne? Um, that was, I mean, you put Adam and Eve on the earth to subdue it. That's right. This is, again, back to the garden, right? Fill the earth, subdue it, right? The very early plan was that we would have rulership, leadership, ownership over everything. This is the plan. This is Genesis 1.26. Then God said, let us make man in our image and our likeness. Let them rule over the fish of the sea, the birds of the air, the livestock, over all the earth, over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created man in his own image. The image of God he made, created him, male and female. He created them. He blessed them. He said to them, here it is again, be fruitful, increase in number, fill the earth, and subdue. 
do it. Rule over the fish of the sea, the birds of the air, over every living creature that moves along the ground. It's stated here in the Genesis 1 in the earliest chapter. It gets restated. Do you guys remember? I think we did this. Do you remember the psalm that is all about Genesis 1 that takes this notion of our rulership and it really kind of like just is a really important psalm in the, in the total storyline? I don't know if I gave it to you or not. But do you know what it is? What, yeah, yes. What is the son of man that you're mindful of? And that's it. Do you, know the, you recall the number? Ocho. Yes, Kelly, that's right. It's Psalm 8. Here's Psalm 8. Ask the question, what is man that you are mindful of him? The son of man that you care for him. You made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You made him ruler over the works of your hands. You put everything under his feet, all flocks and herds, the beasts of the field, the birds of the air, the fish of the sea, all that swim along the paths of the sea. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. And yet it all goes terribly awry, right? Psalm 8 is essentially saying, yeah, there's this thing, but it's not really come to pass. It's not until that Psalm 8 gets invoked again in the book of Hebrews where he's like, finally, 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 somebody came. A human being came who could do it. And he reigns and he rules. We saw this. We look at Daniel 7 as one of these great pictures of this. That finally the king is here and one can reign. But the extraordinary, astonishing, amazing thing is it's not that we were supposed to rule and we're so terrible at it that now he rules in the end. But we were supposed to rule. We were so terrible at it that he came and he rules and then he invites us to join him in the throne room. We, you, are invited to reign with him. Jonathan Edwards preached a sermon called uh, what is it called? The portion, of, it's the one you have. The portion of the righteous, okay? And what do you mean? Portion is like, what's your slice of the pie? What do you get? What are the bennies? What's the, what's the good stuff? And it's amazing. You, you should read the whole thing. But if you don't read the whole thing, you should at least read these like two pages. What he does is he goes through, and uh, it's, his sermons are like 35 pages long. I mean, it just goes on and on and on and on. But in the midst of, he's got like sub point 96, right? And he's going to say, what do we get? Well, one of the things that we get is that we get to see Jesus. We get to be with him. We will behold him. We, that's part of the gift. And, and, he, and he does this list. This is classic Edwards. He's list, 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 list. And he just hits you. And some of these, you'd be like, ah, whatever. I don't really care about that. But some of these might arrest you. So I'm going to give you a handful of this. We'll, we'll just start at the top. And I'll give you a We'll, we'll, we'll skip through. It is said that they shall see him as he is, and they shall know even as they're fully known. And he begins to imagine, what does this mean? If we knew as we're fully known, if we really see him as he is, what would be included in that? What do we get? And among it, and every time I say they, I mean you, okay? They shall have a clear understanding of Christ as mediator and how he has undertaken from all eternity to accomplish their salvation. They shall understand the glorious covenant of redemption between the Father and the Son. They shall see the eternal love that Christ had to them before the foundation of the world. They shall in all probability, I, don't, I love how he kind of hedged his bet here, they shall in all probability understand the mystery of his incarnation. They shall know and understand the glorious way of the salvation by Christ, which things the angels desire to look into. They shall have a full understanding of the infinite wisdom of God in contriving the plan of salvation. And I love this. He goes, 
he kind of gets carried away and he goes long on this. They shall comprehend the height and depth and length and breadth of the love of God in Christ to sinners in undergoing for them the agony of the garden and the more overwhelming agonies of the cross. Now the heart is dull in the contemplation of such things. How often are they heard of by the saints on earth with but little affection? How often when they see them set forth in the Lord's Supper are they cold and lifeless? But then it shall not be so. Then the wonderful works of God and the love of Christ and the work of redemption will appear as they are. Then there will, they, there will constantly, without any interruption, be a most lively and full sense of it, without any deadness or coldness. Everything in the work of redemption will appear in its true glory. The understanding shall be wonderfully open and it shall be perpetually like the clear hemisphere with the sun in the meridian. And there shall never come over one cloud to darken the mind. Then the saints shall, she shall sell. Then the saints shall see fully how the excellence and loveliness of Christ appear in all that he did and suffered. And he continues on, okay? And as you flip over the page, as he continues on, he says at the top, not only will they see him, this glorious person at a distance, but they will be admitted to be near him to converse with him. This sight of his glory and his loveliness will fill them with the most exalted love, which love will cause them to desire conversation and they shall be admitted to it, to the full of their desires and that at all times. Okay, so you, you get to see him but not from a distance but up close. And if you get up close to him, you wanna to talk to him and you get to talk to him and there's an intimacy and a richness to this but then he observes this. Go down. One, this, this conversation, or almost to my point, shall be most free and intimate. And there shall be nothing to forbid them or deter them. And though Christ is so glorious a person and so exalted a state in heaven, being Lord of heaven and earth, yet he will treat them as brethren and they shall converse with him as friends. And then... Edwards answers the question, why does he make us kings and queens? This is why. He will also honor them and advance them to the dignity of kings. That they may be fit to converse with him with so glorious a king. He makes you to be a queen so that it is reasonable that you would have unfettered access to him. Is that not mind-boggling. He does all. He exalts you to this place because he is the exalted one. He went to the lowest place and was exalted to the highest place. And as we meet him in the lowest place, he exalts us to the highest place so that we can be with him. That's amazing. That's what John looked. When John looks and he sees among the numerous things, there's the river and there's the spirit of God and there's life and his name is on, our name is on him and his name is on us. And he exalts us to kings and queens so that we might be intimate with him. This is what awaits you. This is why we labor to see his name exalted up. And we've got to stop because you've got to go to church. So um, I'm going to pray for you. And I'm going to ask if you are coming to the 11, if you're going to church, 11 o'clock, come out this door over here we're Kelly, on Kelly's side and grab your communion stuff. And then you can head in. And if you're leaving, then I forget the rules. Do you go out that door? Go out the back. Is that right? Go out the back, okay? Let me pray for you, then we'll be gone. 
Jesus, we long for this. Maranatha, come soon. Would you come soon? We long to see the fulfillment of all things. Would you make us fit for it? We might lift up your name. We love you. Amen.